In 2011, I was in a damaging incident and that left my hand broken. And I remember after uh, the event took place, a large lump protruding out of the top of my hand. And of course, I thought to myself, problem, right? And so I was in the service at the time, so I rushed out to the military hospital and got some imaging done, and the doctors came in and they told me that they didn't believe my hand was broken, but that it was severely sprained. Now, unfortunately for me, I had a fitness test coming in just a few days' time, and I couldn't even make a fist. Well, church, it turns out I was not fit enough uh, to pass this test doing one-arm pull-ups, so I failed, and... Um, had to retest at a different time. The problem was in my hand. And I believe that my doctors were wrong about the problem, that they didn't see it clearly. So I went to my medical officer for the battalion, and I asked, would you do more imaging on my hand? There's a problem. And, of course, they refused because whatever, right? And I went back and back and back. It was a nuisance to the point where they said, okay, fine. I felt like the officer appeased me and approved some further imaging. Well, he called me back into his office to tell me the results, and it turned out my hand was broken, and in fact, I needed surgery. And so they put me under, they cut my hand open, they took some bone out, and they reset what was broken, and my hand was restored as a result of the surgery. But also... That medical officer's understanding of the problem was restored when he saw the picture more clearly. And over time, because of this restorative work, I would be able to retest and pass that test that I had failed. In Luke chapter 13, we see the restoring power of Jesus Christ in different strokes Like a beautiful painting, Jesus first shows us how he restores the broken. And then he adds further paint to canvas as he restores a right understanding of God. And lastly, he alludes to or he explains how, through stories, how he will complete his great masterpiece in restoring the world So let us begin. Look with me at Luke chapter 13. We're going to focus on verses 10 through 13. And we're going to see first how Jesus restores the broken as he restores a broken woman. This is what God's word says. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. And she was bent over. And could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her. And instantly she was restored. And began to then go forward and glorify God. Last week, Pastor Stephen gave us very sound instruction over the doctrine of repentance flowing from this chapter in Luke 13 verses 1 through 9. And it's on the shoulders of those verses that we stand this morning with our text. We see that Jesus lays a foundation for restoration through a call to repent and believe. He explains in verse 5, if you'll look back, 
at chapter 13. He says, repent or you shall perish. This is the reality of which we all live. And it's almost like Jesus, he gives this instruction and then provides for us practical application. Or he preaches something and then does something to see where our hearts are. It's much like um, in the dark spaces of a crime scene, an investigator will come into that space and shine a black light to see further evidence, to expose further evidence so that he can solve the crime. For true repentance to take place and ultimately for true restoration to occur, Jesus shines a light at the heart in order to expose sin. And when we see our sin, we can now repent and believe, repent and exercise faith. And after this call of repentance in verses 1 through 9, we see Jesus teaching for the last time in the Gospel of Luke in a synagogue on a Sabbath day. And it's while he's addressing this large crowd of listeners that he sees a woman. And the text tells us that this woman has been disabled by a spirit, her back corrupted to the point where she cannot straighten up at all. She has been in bondage, the text says, for over 18 years. Now that's a significant amount of time, is it not? That's a significant amount of time to be inflicted by a demon. But what inspires me about this woman is where she continues to go where she strives to find relief, where she hopes she can find restoration of her body and her soul, she makes her way to the synagogue on Sabbath day. Charles Spurgeon once said in a quip that a few things are without exception, but a man fishes for what he is most likely to catch. And this woman was fishing for an encounter with God that could loosen the tie of the evil one on her body. Could you imagine a demon-afflicted person coming to our church? Like walking in right now, week after week, hoping to find restoration. You know, I hope our response would be to engage her with the hope and light of Christ. But you really don't know how you'll respond to a situation until you're put in the middle of it, right? Well, maybe we can ask it this way. Who could come to church that you may disagree with or you might personally have an issue with? Maybe a, a homosexual couple, a transgender. Maybe it would be a Republican or a Democrat, depending on your flavor. Maybe your once abuser or a family from the Middle East right after you get back from a deployment. Um, your tyrant of a boss. I mean, good grief, maybe a witch walks in. How would we respond? Because you can see them vividly and you know the sins that are engaged in. And um, they keep showing up over and over and over again. Why do you think they would come to a church? Because Jesus sees them. 
he's beckoning to them, they realize there is something awry in them. They just don't know what the treatment is. And so just like you and I come to church week after week after week, there is something in us that we know we need further help with. We need further treatment of, and it is God who alone can provide freedom and restoration. Jesus fulfills the law of God, but keep in mind, he always keeps people who need him at the priority, as the priority. And he looks upon our sinful condition first with eyes that, that judge first with compassion, not retribution. But he calls people to repent, and then he displays power in this text to free and restore a broken person. Friends, our problem is that we all want justice, just not on us. Just not on us. We burn inside at the sin of others, but forget so easily the sin in our own hearts. In our own sinful condition, we have this unrighteous desire to look at the sins of others and want God to do something about it. But we don't want to, we want to neglect the sin in our own hearts and don't want God to do something about that. Almost like we're trying to pull an illusion or a sleight of hand with God. Look at them, Lord, not at me. As I hide in the bush with fig leaves. But we must look with Christ at people with compassion without compromising the truth. Repent and believe is our cry. Let us not miss verses 1 through 9. Because Jesus most clearly says repent. Turn away from your sins and believe on me. But he also then judges with compassion and frees people, calls them affectuously in order to free their hearts from the bondage of their own will and the bondage of the enemy. Christ alone can break you free of those things and restore you into kingdom fellowship. The reason you come to church week after week, I hope church, is to encounter Christ Remember, dear friends, you are equally in need of the restoring power of Christ in our own brokenness as well. Our sin makes us into a bent-backed person. But it is the restorative work of Jesus that puts steel in your spines. Do you understand the sin that you have clearly? Do you understand the power of Christ? To restore you. Such were some of us, the text said during the time of confession. Idolaters. And God's wrath is coming down on the disobedient. And we were just like that. That is where we find equality. And in Christ, we also find equality in our rest, restoration through the cross. So fish for him as you commune with the saints. Don't come to church just to see one another.
whole heart, just like this woman. She's freed of her disability, and instantly she's restored and began to what? Glorify God. Worship the one who freed her. Amen? That's why we, we, we come Sunday after Sunday to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Over and over and over again. Why, Pastor Neil? Why, Pastor Stephen? Can you, do you keep talking about sin? Because we grow ignorant and forget where we war and where we still struggle and where we still need the restorative power of Jesus Christ. Jesus paints his work of art first with the brushstroke of restoring the broken. Then he also adds further paint to canvas and showing how he restores a right understanding. Look with me at verses 14 through 17. Here's what it says. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, this daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. They were shamed. But... The whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things that he was doing. A few weeks ago, my kids were arguing with one another. And their quarrel reached the point to where they began to yell at each other, right? And so, upon hearing this, I yelled at them to quit yelling. Like a hypocritical act, right? Stop yelling as I scream across our, up, or up our stairs. Often we respond sinfully or hypocritically to our circumstances because we do not understand. We do not have a right understanding of God's word or his character or how we should relate to him. Or this wrong understanding is born out of a refusal to seek out Christ in his word. We just assume we know everything we need to know about God. And so that leads us. Naturally so, to a wrong understanding about his will and who Christ is and what God's character is. But church, what should we say about the word of God? Our confession that our church holds to expresses it this way. We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired. And it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and is the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds and opinions should be tried or 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says it this way 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Everybody say profitable. Profitable Profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Scripture is profitable. It is living and active because the word of God, Christ Jesus, is living and active. And the leader of the synagogue seeks to shame Jesus, ultimately accusing him of sinning against God. Why? Because the rabbinical law of the day is ruling his heart, not the right understanding of the heart of God as dictated to us through the word of God. So what is the accusation he's levying against Christ? This is as simple as I can say it. That healing or mercy is a work. And Jesus is working on the Sabbath, which is meant for rest. And the woman's sin is that she should not expect to be healed on a Sabbath day of all days, to which the living word rebukes him and all his adversaries calling him what? Hypocrite. You all are hypocrites. But the hypocrisy that Jesus points out concerns their views of works of necessity. You see, in Deuteronomy, we learn there are on the Sabbath day certain works we can engage in because they are necessary like untying your oxen from the feed trough and bringing them to water or else they shall die. It is a necessary work. Or more specifically, he's pointing out the hypocrisy of their understanding of the term untying or loosening, which I think is the better word. Jesus, as he lays out the case of their hypocrisy, uses the Greek word luo which means to unfasten or untie, unbind, or loosen. And he explains that they view loosening their livestock to give them food and water as a work of necessity. But they don't view loosening a daughter of Abraham from the bondage of the evil one as a necessary work. What they're missing, church, and what we often miss miss, is that Sabbath The Lord's day is meant to be a day of rejoicing, a day of freedom and liberation, pointing back to God who liberated or loosened his people from slavery in Egypt, who loosens us from slavery to sin and death. This is what we're to engage in and as we celebrate and worship. And it's in that exchange That what Jesus does is he loosens the minds of many who have a wrong view of the heart of God. He restores their understanding as he addresses the crowds. It is only the word that can loosen us from wrong belief. And you need to know that wrong belief enslaves unknown amounts of others. I'll give you a case and a point. The prosperity gospel churches have a wrong understanding of the heart of God. 
and they propagate a false gospel week after week to untold amounts of people. And not only that, do we, they take that wrong understanding and they ship it off into other continents to be worshipped wrongly. But it is the word of God that when we seek to know it in its original manuscripts, as close as that we can get, using historical grammatical criticisms, can we understand what the point of the text is so that we can be shaped by it? And it is Jesus that restores a right understanding of the character, the law, and the gospel of God. And this is what Jesus is restoring. He's restoring this understanding that mercy or healing is a work of necessity. It is permissible. It's not an act of rebellion, but an act of glory. Look at the response of the crowd in verse 17 as their understanding has been restored. What do they do? They rejoice in all the glorious things that Christ is doing. They rejoice in the glory of God. They see more of the masterpiece of Christ that he is painting. And we get to see more of this. And our response must be to be merciful as our Savior has been merciful with us. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds through the word of God in Christ Jesus. So as we've seen the restorative power of Christ and how he restores broken people. And we've seen how he restores right belief in those broken people. We now get to see how he completes or will complete his masterpiece. As he shows us how he's going to restore the world. Look at the rest of the text here in verses 18 through 21. I'll reread it. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. The restoration of broken people begins first with an exposure of sin. That black light in the crime scene. He must expose our sin. And the way we respond is in confession of our sin, a hatred of our sin, a repentance of our sin. Turning away from that and towards God. And he also restores a right belief in the one who restores, right? Jesus. And Jesus illustrates in this passage how he restores individuals through loosening them from the bondage of their will, the bondage they have to the evil one, and the bondage of their own minds as he establishes right belief. But then he gives this greater vision of how he's going to go about and restore the world. He gives two parables on the kingdom of God. What is it like? What can I compare it to? And what these parables teach us is that the people of God are already in the kingdom. But the fullness of the kingdom has not yet been realized. It is the people of God. Sorry, these parables teach that Christ has come as the seed to establish the kingdom of God. 
He is the leaven that eventually will expand and ferment all of the flour. It will permeate across all of the material. And it is the mustard seed through faith that grows up into a tree. And this tree provides shade and a home for the birds. The expansion of the kingdom of God is a God work. It is something that he is sovereign over. And in his sovereign will, he established a process of how it will grow. Church, it is a slow work. But one day it will finish. He will complete his work. And it is the people of God, us, who nest in the tree. This tree of life, this kingdom tree, is the home by which we live, work, and rest. It reminds me of the phrase, the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which means to live in the presence of God or under the authority of God. And this is the call of the Christian life, to live in his presence, under his authority. And what Christ commands us to is to live, is to rest, is to work in his presence, under his reign. And that work that we're called to is to expand the kingdom. Expand the restorative power of the kingdom. And the examples that we get all throughout Luke 13 here, and the verses that we've covered, has been that kingdom, the kingdom expands through the way we care for people. Uh, Christ, he cares for a broken woman. Christ, he cares to restore a wrong understanding. Christ, he cares to establish his kingdom, which will restore the world. We expand the kingdom of God through care, which is love. I've been thinking a lot about what biblical care looks like. It takes uh, several things. It takes a love of God. It takes a love of our neighbor It takes having an affectionate care for one another as we encounter different circumstances of hardship and struggle and life and rejoicing and prosperity even. It takes on a mentality of compassion and grace that puts others before ourselves. You know, right now we've had a lot of people in our church, as you can kind of tell, um, who have gotten sick over different things, but they've gotten sick, and so they're not here right now. And throughout this entire pandemic, I've, I've heard different stories of when someone contracts COVID and someone calls them to check on them. But there's like different motives going on. Usually that what the person who has the illness hears is, have you been vaccinated? Or man, I was just with you. Or I better go get tested now. All of those responses are not ones of mercy. They're not ones of compassion and care. With any sickness, sin, hardship, loss, our response should be to see how they are. Where is your heart, friend? How are you doing? How can I walk with you? It should be to pray and to intercede for one another as we cry out to God for our friends and our family and our community and our city. It should be one that tends to physical needs. I heard one story of a family whose the husband and the wife both 
got COVID and their kids were just like wild things for a while, you know. And uh, some folks from the church came and brought their kids some Dollar Tree toys, Dollar General toys, because it was a new thing and it would capture their attention for a little bit so their parents could get some rest. Or others, we see often uh, meal trains going out and providing food for one another. These are the ways we care for one another. But more importantly, friends, we need to remind one another of the hope we have in Christ. Dear friends, extend the kingdom of God by focusing on how you can love and care for our city, our community, and our families together. Expressing love in a God-glorifying way, not a self-focused way. You know, I was several years ago flying out to Philadelphia, over 10 years ago, and as we were coming into the city, uh, we began to hit, I guess, different jet streams or something because it was some severe turbulence. Like, uh, I remember the overhead bins, like, swaying in the aisle. I looked out the window, and it looked like the wings of the plane were flapping. Like, I thought, oh, if there was a time, right, this is the time. And I never really realized until that moment how much hope and trust I was putting in those pilots to navigate that situation and to land the plane. Friends, I know when we look out at the world and we see our culture crumbling around us maybe or we see evidence of the depravity of man, the evil in the hearts of men, it may seem hopeless, but it is not. The promise we have from Christ in these parables is that it teaches us God is at work and he will accomplish what he started in the promise to the seed of Eve, the shoot of Jesse, the Messiah, Jesus. We must place our hope that Christ will complete his masterpiece. He will land the plane regardless of what it looks like around us. It's despite us that he does this work. So friends, God sees you like he saw the broken woman. He calls to you and he will place you in positions of difficulty to glorify him and influence your surrounding areas for the sake of his name and the furthering of his kingdom. So we are to extend it in the way that we love and we care for others. Let's stand and pray.